0: This is Ibarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. Part of my work week includes scouring the internet, looking for photographers and photography that grab my attention. It leads to many of the conversations that you enjoy on the show, but it also serves as a a great source of inspiration for me. I'm glad to say that I'm receiving that from the hundreds of contributors to the TCF Flickr group where listeners of the show submit their own work. I'm pulling from these images to create a weekly video on the TCF YouTube channel in which I discuss different topics of photography. I encourage you to check it out and join the Flickr group yourself. I think it will provide a great opportunity for you to share your work and hopefully create a community of photographers who can inspire and encourage each other. Check out the show notes and the website for more info on that. I also want to let you know that I'll be teaching several workshops in the coming months. On November 8th, I'll be teaching my course, The Art of Editing and Sequencing at the Los Angeles Center of Photography. It's an all-day course in which I share how to take an existing body of work or a personal project and edit it into a tight selection of images for the purpose of a portfolio or a web gallery. It's it's one of my favorite courses to teach, and if you are or intend to be in the LA area during that time, please sign up. As well, I'll be teaching a street photography workshop with Valerie Jardon on February 27th, 28th, and March 1st of next year in downtown Los Angeles. The three-day workshop will provide you with uh, an intense street photography and experience and and an opportunity to learn from two photographers who have a real passion for shooting on the street. We each bring our own unique and distinctive approach, so you'll be learning from from two people who uh, may approach the street in a very different way, but uh, nevertheless, Uh, can get some really wonderful images and we hope that you'll learn from us uh, in that way. Now, whether you're a beginner or an advanced shooter, I guarantee you a wonderful and a valuable time. Links to both these workshops will be found on the website and in the show notes. Now, today's guest, Andy Schreiber, is a photographer who has turned her camera onto herself and her family over the years. The results are intimate, honest, and frank images that are not only about family life but also about the process of becoming older. As photographers, we are often directing the camera at other people and documenting the stories of their lives, but when a photographer turns the camera on himself or herself, the work can become poignant, powerful, and even universal. I began our conversation with Andy by asking her about photographing what she describes as the in-between moments of her life. Moments that most of us might overlook and never consider making a photograph of.
1: Well, I think there are moments that are, you know, seemingly less important to the family album. You know, I have tons of pictures, obviously, of our birthday parties and you know, bigger moments, I guess, more family life cycle kind of moments, but, um, it's really sort of the stuff that goes on every day that I find more interesting photographically. So I guess you'd maybe call those in between moments. There may be moments that are less, less noticed as photographic in some ways.
0: So the the peak moments we often think about is like at the birthday parties or the reunions sure. and those events but can you give me an example of an in-between moment so that people who may not have had the opportunity to see your work as of as of yet what that what that might look like
1: Well um okay there's a photograph on my blog right now actually it was from um it was actually taken on Mother's Day and I was with my my family I have, I have two boys and a husband and we were um, visiting a little town on the Hudson River. And my son, who was sort of going through a little bit of a, I guess, a teenage moment. <laughs> He's 13, my older son. He was just sort of laying on, I guess it was really on a, a porch. We were sort of waiting to go get ice cream. And he sort of was laying there sort of sideways. It was just sort of a nothing moment. But the light sort of caught his eye and it became something. But, I, you know, it's it sort of tuning into, you know, what's going on for your family for your your you know the people who are closest to you and finding something that maybe is a little captivating to you and maybe the hope is to others as well so it's just it's just a really sort of nice moment of him in this kind of awkward space of you know just being a new teenager and uh, grappling with some of those issues.
0: You started your part of your photographic career um, as a photojournalist and as a photo editor and you've talked about how that that kind of work is so infused by narrative and storytelling, and, yes. it's, and it's kind of the polar opposite of what you're describing right now in terms of the in-between moments to some extent. In news yes. gathering, you're I, looking for that peak moment that, that tells the story. Was it a challenge to sort of transition from that way of thinking photographically to, to what you're doing now largely?
1: Yes. Actually, it was very hard for me. And I, my, my earliest years were spent, um, in college as a newspaper photographer. And when I got out of school, it was really all I, that was like the only skill I really had. I was in art school at the University of Michigan, but I also worked for this school newspaper, the Michigan Daily. So when I left college, I really, you know, I was a storyteller. I wanted to work for newspapers and, and, you know, tell stories that had a really strong narrative. So I did that for a couple of years. And then even working as a photo editor, you know, um, you're editing to, to make a point. To tell a story, Um, one of my uh, my last photo editing jobs, I was on staff at People Magazine, and you know that was that's a really great magazine for a photo editor. It's a lot. There are a lot of there's a lot of assigning there, and it was great, and I loved it. But when I got away from all that, and I was suddenly a mom with two small kids living out in the suburbs, I really felt this desire to photograph, but I didn't exactly know what or how, and I was sort of looking around for stories and ideas, and I just. I, I really was like sort of without a narrative, I finally realized that I could drop that. It took me a few years, though, it, to realize that my work had sort of developed in this way that was not really a linear story. But it, it was a bit of a roundabout till I, I realized that I could let go of that sort of need to be a photojournalist in my own life and just tell a story in a more personal way without a strong narrative
0: That transition from living in the city to living in the suburbs Mm -hmm. must have been not only like a personal dramatic change, but also photographically, because I think living in the city, especially in a big city, you're constantly bombarded by all the stimuli, and so much of it is so dramatic, and then living in the suburbs, it's like, it's not that. It's much Mm -hmm. more quiet. The events are can be a lot more subtle uh, to an extent. Did you face... Any difficulties in terms of being able to recognize what was photo worthy coming from a, 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 a life experience where things were just so much more pronounced, where the, where the peaks were so much more obvious, if that makes any sense?
1: You know, that makes a lot of sense. It's funny, too, because living in the city, you would think there is so much drama and there's so much action. And frankly, you know, I was never a street photographer. But had I been, that would have been the right place for me. I was really always sort of working on, you know, more personal kind of documentary stories. I had photographed um, women boxers, gold, uh, actually uh, women in the golden gloves, and women bodybuilders. So I had some stories that I did over those years. And but I, I never really took advantage of being in the city itself as a subject. And coming up here, you know, I'm not exactly in the country, but I really am in uh, deep in suburbia here. And it was just a completely different experience. Like there was just me, my house some small kids and, you know, making a lot of new friends who were very different from my old friends, um, where I came out of, you know, a magazine environment surrounded by lots of photo people and really funny people, especially, um, at people magazine. I, it was very different up here and I made some wonderful friends, but from completely different backgrounds than um, myself. So I, in some ways I still feel a little bit like a fish out of water, you know, and it's almost 12 years I've been here, (laughs) but transitioning and finding the subjects up here, I really just, I had no choice in some ways, I guess, but to turn to my own family, you know, unless I was going to go out and really try to shoot a story, you know, about, about something else, something other. But, um, I think being tied to home, I really, I kind of didn't really have a choice and I I wanted to make pictures. So it just kind of happened here.
0: So were you initially just making, making, um, images, of, of just your life there without really thinking, thinking about necessarily producing a body of work. Um, when did you start thinking that you, you might have something there in terms of what you were photographing that, you know, that would go beyond the interest of your, your family and your immediate friends in terms of the content you were creating?
1: It was really a number of years. Um, i trying to think maybe my youngest was about six or so, my older one was eight. So it was really a number of years and I'm just sort of doing my own thing and kind of putting some books together actually of my own work as I was moving along, but really not, I guess I wasn't taking it seriously, but it just didn't, it was just my family album. It's just sort of what I did. But I think a lot of what happened is that, you know, my editing background really did take over because, you know, it, it is all in the edit. You know, I could um, edit broadly and keep all the stuff in, but to make it more pointed is sort of, that's sort of when something comes out. It's really, you know, pulling out the pictures that are meaningful to you and, and clo- you know, the ones that really make your, your heart skip a beat. But I, I tend to be a very ruthless editor, and I think that's sort of what I did to my own work, and then I realized that I had a little more there than I thought. But it, until that point, I was making family albums. I mean, no joke, my family albums every year, and I, I do them through blurb. they are about five 600 pictures of just stuff, and from with, from that pile of stuff comes my work with a very careful edit. Mm. So, you know, there's that Cartier-Bresson uh, expression, it takes a lot of milk to make a little bit of cheese. That really is very true in my case.
0: <laughs> Are you constantly shooting or were you constantly shooting uh, when, you, when you first started? You know, you're raising kids. There's so much stuff that you have to do during the course of the day, uh, yeah. even without picking up the camera. So how did you, you know, make make the time for it for you know photographically were you shooting every day would you shoot every once in a while what, what was your process like
1: it was really very random i gotta say um there were times when i felt like well you know okay i'll bring a camera and times when i just didn't feel like up to dragging. i had enough you know bags full of diapers and sippy cups and snacks where i just couldn't bear to bring the camera along so it was sort of random and sort of when the mood would strike me and and i'm still in some ways that way I don't always have it going, you know, I will have it around on a vacation and, and, um, I, but I do feel when I have a camera with me, I really can't relax. You know, i I feel like every moment is a po- has a possibility. So I, I, it's hard actually. So I, I it, when I really do want to kind of relax, I do leave it behind, but on vacation it is generally around, I have to say, and, you know, there's always a camera nearby, you know, in my house so on a shelf somewhere close. And there are moments where I'll run and get it. <laughs>
0: So how did your your family and friends respond to that? Because everyone is used to having a camera around, but they, they usually uh, assume that the camera is only bringing out to document something, quote-unquote, special. And if you're, you, you know, you're photographing events that most people would think, why would you want to photograph that? So what what did they make of you having I don't a camera? Know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I think there were definitely some moments where I remember some friends saying, what are you doing? Why are you taking a picture of that ponytail or... You know, what are you like a little bit puzzling? I think at this point, they're sort of used to me. Um, We were out with some friends over the weekend and and I ended up with dessert. It was a bowl of um, blue ice cream. Just it looked fun. It was like, I guess, you know what the kids usually get. My kids are away at camp and I kind of miss them. So I got this a few scoops of this blue ice cream, which was called Cookie Monster. And of course, then there I am photographing it at the table And I'm surrounded by friends and they're just sort of like used to me now. It's really very funny when I think about it. But they, I think in the early years um, when our kids were all young, they were like, what is she doing (laughs) and why? What's her agenda?
0: Your kids, especially, um, were they sort of relatively easier subjects then than now as they enter uh, teenagehood?
1: Uh, You know, they, I guess so. I mean, they, they're still extremely generous with me. So... I guess I'm a little, I think I'm almost more conscious about it than they are, where I don't want to bring the camera out too often and I don't want to wear up my welcome. And I'm very careful about those moments. Um, I don't really want to pester them, but so far they really haven't shut me down. Although we'll see how complicated things get around here as they, you know, really develop into full-blown teenagers and, you know, with all the issues that 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 brings up. But so far, we've been okay. I just, uh, I, I am, I'm definitely conscious of it. I don't know if they are yet, but mm. they, you know, I'm still waiting for them to pull the plug on me. But it's so far so good.
0: <laughs> well, there are ever issues of a privacy because I think most people are very protective of their families, and uh, you know, there have, there's been a, a long history of photographers who have used their own personal family life as, as the, the raw material for their, for their art, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Considering that you know some of the images are, are very intimate and very personal, do you ever have some qualms about what pictures you choose to share with your audience, be it in a, in your blog or in in the books that you've produced?
1: Um, you know, I really haven't. Yeah. I, 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 listen, there are definitely pictures that I have not, I wouldn't even consider posting or sharing. And frankly, you know, my, my kids walk around without towels on after they just, they are who they are. And, but those pictures, I, I'm not even making so many of them. I think when they were little, it was kind of more fun to grab them in the backyard naked, you know, but um, maybe I'm doing a little more censoring as their mother and I, I should know better as well so I am definitely careful about that stuff and I certainly wouldn't want to put anything out there that embarrasses them but for the most part they're really pretty comfortable as who they are and that, you know, that, that may change but they, they really like the posts you know I will try to post say on their birthdays with a little birthday wish and they're always really very um, excited and I get a big hug from them and it's really lovely actually they, they take it in stride which is which is great. I'm very appreciative
0: of that. Well, the work that turned me on to you was your most recent work, Pretty Please, in which you turn the camera onto yourself. And you're exploring, exploring issues of growing older, of uh, sexuality, of, of, of identity. And you know, I look at those pictures and they're so raw and they're so vulnerable and they're so open. Um, personally, even though I'm an avid photographer, I would have a hard time turning uh, a camera to, on myself in such a... Uh, in such a courageous way, uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, tell me about the you know the idea behind those images and why you felt that they uh, that 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 was something that you needed to explore with your camera.
1: Well, it really it, when I say it happened organically, it really did. I'm I'm a very poor planner <laughs> with my own work. I really am. Um, so, you know, over the years, as I was photographing my family, I would sort of. Turn the camera myself just kind of, I don't know, out of boredom, out of emotional something that I was going through, but really with honestly not a whole lot of thought. And again, it took a few years before I realized that this was sort of cooking all along, but it took me a while before I, before I really kind of grasped what the pictures were about and looking back at them and thinking, you know, why did I make that picture while I was, you know, on the rug in my parents' house or, <laughs> you know. But those were sort of all in the mix with everything else. And the funny like the the body of work is sort of a separate body of work now. But really, if I were gonna put together, I don't know, a retrospective <laughs> of all my work, and I would have sort of interspersed the Pretty Please moments with, you know, some of the larger, you know, family moments which are really called wonderlust. It would really all seem perfectly fine together to me. They're sort of separated right now for the sake of having a website and, you know, needing galleries and having to put them into some kind of order because otherwise it's just this massive, massive pile of pictures. Mm-hmm. So they, they came about organically. And I once I started really looking at them and trying to put words to them, I I realized what they were about for me you know, which was about, you know, life is changing and things are changing. I guess that's always going to be the case. But I think somehow at middle age, those changes are suddenly more noticeable than they are, say, in your 20s or 30s. And, you know, even though those are years with lots of change and, and flux and, you know, a young adult's life, um, your 40s are kind of something else. Like things really do shift uh, physically. And um, I think your mental, your attitude changes a lot as well.
0: You you described the term Invisible forties that you'd heard that in your thirties mm-hmm. and that you really didn't know what that meant until you were in your forties. Can you explain what that, uh, what those two words describe and how they related to to your experience?
1: Yeah, and it really is sort of just about my experience because I really don't know how everybody else feels. But when I when I heard that term, I was really at the time um, still a pretty young parent. My kids were little, you know. I was in my thirties, and I thought, what what does that mean? Because I really felt. Um, you know, I may have been tired and sort of beleaguered, as a, as all younger parents are. Um, I felt really sort of, I guess, more vibrant, more necessary. I was certainly fertile and, you know, things were cooking. So, you know, we, we had even tried to have a third child and that didn't work out. So it was certainly a very busy decade for me, my 30s. <laughs> um, and the 40s really were very different. And I think, you know... I've never been somebody that really has cared about what other people think of me, but I did notice, I did start to notice and feel that I was sort of out there not as, um, I guess, not being seen the same same way. And I don't just mean that in sort of like a sexual way, but even just people dealing with you on the street or at the store, you know, suddenly everything was, you know, yes, ma'am, you know, can I I help you, ma'am? And Mm. it just was like a weird shift. I, I can't exactly say when it happened but you're just somehow put in a different place. And I didn't realize I was going to that place, but I was.
0: How much does it play in terms of being perceived as attractive, as desirable? I know the experience between men and women can be pretty different, but increasingly I think it's a little less so. But how? Mm-hmm. What, what role did that play in terms of that shift in, per, in perception?
1: You know, it's interesting. I think when I was in my 20s, and probably my 30s at some point, you know, I felt, did I feel attractive? I mean, you know, I would get attention here and there. I was never, you know, <laughs> never like busy in the bar scene. I was never really pick up a you but know, you would get a different kind of attention, I guess. And I wasn't aware that it was going to be different than anything else. I just thought that's the way it was going to be. And somehow that type of attention does change as you get into your 40s. I mean, I still feel like I'm an attractive person person, I'm a nice person, I'm friendly, I'm engaging with people. And I, I certainly make that effort. But you do, there's, there's this feeling of being somehow overlooked in a way. And I, it's very, it's sort of very, a very abstract feeling. But that's, I think, what these pictures really relate to. That feeling of just sort of, where am I now? How did I get here?
0: Mm. And, and, you know, and, and going through your 40s, is especially, you know, with, with kids, um, they become your life. And so it's, I think, for, the experience of a lot of people both men and women is it and maybe a little more for uh, for women historically is this feeling of losing a sense of yourself supplying that for the sake of your 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 family do you find that that in some ways this this body of work and the way that you're approaching it is a way of sort of reclaiming yourself eh, about creating and uh, defining your own identity in the midst of all the things that you you have to do that make up your life today
1: I do. There is certainly like a taking stock of this moment kind of thing, whether that's to validate my existence as somewhat separate, yet still an integral part of my family. Um, I'm just trying to think. It feels to me a bit, I think even just being a photographer and having something that I do that is a little bit different from the larger community where I live does sort of separate me in a way that you know, does, I I am, I do feel a little different because of that. I'm always sort of onto something. I'm on my computer a lot. I think, you know, there are those shifts as well, but you know, I think also being somebody in a family, um, a parent, a caregiver, you do tend to lose a lot of the you in that, you know, where are you, where are your needs? And I, I think having photography just even in general in my life does sort of give me a little piece of my own something, if that makes sense. But the work is, is definitely about that feeling of taking stock of this moment of where I am at midlife. I mean, this is, you know, I think this is worthy of notice, actually.
0: There are a lot of people who uh, are in similar circumstances as you. They spend their time raising their family and they may not have a work that uh, would usually define them. But th- despite that, did you have any hes- hesitancy about identifying yourself as a quote-unquote photographer?
1: Um, you know, it, it is kind of funny, actually. I, I didn't really have a hesitancy, but there was a certain point where a friend asked me to photograph um, her son's bar mitzvah. And I really did hesitate. To, I, I just sort of didn't want to take the job. I didn't think I could do it. And it was a little bit odd. So even putting myself out there like that publicly, I did do the job. And people would say to me, are you here as a guest or are you here as the photographer? And it was just funny to sort of separate myself and say, well, no, I'm here as a photographer. <laughs> you know, very different than how they normally see me at school pickup or, you know, out a, for a cup of coffee with a friend. But so that I think that moment was sort of a little more telling for me. And now I'm I'm sort of like the neighborhood photographer in a way. It's just it's just a little funny. Um, and I don't know if actually most people really separate what I do sort of say at an event or party, um, versus what I do personally in my photography. I think they probably just see it all as one big whole thing, but I, I really do separate the two. It's, you know, my client work is very different from my personal work. Occasionally I will get a personal picture when I'm working for a client. And that's sort of part of my motivation and why I like doing it. You know, I like having access to parties and people and shoes and you know, it's sort of my, my version of street photography, where I'm invited in.
0: I was just interviewing another photographer who uh, has an impressive body of work, uh, but they have a normal day job that mm. has nothing to do with photography. And mm-hmm. his and your work, I think, are exceptional. They're wonderful bodies of work. And yet, if to a lot of people's minds, they feel like they can't claim, they feel like they can't claim the title of photographer because they don't make a living at it.
1: Mm. That somehow
0: mm-hmm. that that being compensated for it financially is allows you to lay claim to that to that name, and I think yeah. that's and that's why I kind of asked you that question because um, you know here in this country we get so defined by what we get paid to do.
1: Yes, and, and what you put on your W two at the end of the year. <laughs>
0: right.
1: No, we, I, I remember sitting in a meeting of at our you know local temples on this. I'm um, actually on the arts committee, and somebody was saying, "Oh, so and so is not an artist because." He doesn't write artist on his W two at the end of. And I said, "That's just bullshit. <laughs> mm. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's ridiculous. We don't all make money off our art. I mean, it would be lovely if we if we could, but that's not why we do it."
0: Tell me about um, the first book that you uh, that you did. I think it was Lust Light. Yes. Tell me about the process of going through the many images that you had to you know to edit them down into that workable into a workable, you know, collection for that, for the first book? Because you had produced a lot of work by that time. And even though you had the experience of being an editor, what were some of the challenges in terms of, you know, putting something together that you felt was cohesive, strong, and there was a a clear representation of that body of work up to that point?
1: You know, it's funny when I look at that book, um, it really for me represents the early years um, as a parent. I mean, not quite the infant years because that's not in that book you know my kids are still pretty little and at the time I I had a shared blog um, with a friend of mine who was a writer and we would take turns I would post a picture she would write then I would sort of respond with a photograph and we went back and forth that blog was called Full Constant Light and it was it was really we we only did it for a year it was a really good experience for me and great to work with um, this friend of mine who's a terrific writer her name is Carrie Lifshultz you know so when I I guess went to put that Book together. A lot of the work in that book came from our blog, but some of it didn't. And there were things that I went back to, and I realized I had overlooked. But again, it was applying a really hard eye to what was there to sort of pull together. There were not a lot of photographs in that book—maybe thirty-five or so. I mean, at thirty, I don't think there were too many. Um, it was a very interesting edit and they're in some ways all over the place when I look at the book it's like well you know there's a picture from behind my steering wheel and then you know there's a picture of my kid losing his tooth you know it's a little bit all over the place but somehow I don't know exactly why it came together and I guess it was sort of in the sequencing which was you know not chronological but just sort of based on how I felt it should look it was pretty intuitive process I guess. But, um, again, applying a very harsh and sort of ruthless eye to it to pull it together. I was really surprised, actually, because that book um, won an honorable mention in Blurb's Photo Book Now competition. I was shocked. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I just thought, you know, these are my family pictures. Who's really going to care, you Mm. know? And so that was sort of a really good moment for me to sort of realize that what I was doing was really a little more worthwhile than maybe I I had thought.
0: when you're, you know, collecting the imagery that you're considering for the book and planning, uh, and just choosing, did that happen all on the computer? Did you make small prints and sort of sort through those to try to figure out what would go in and what would go out? What what were the mechanics of the process of actually just choosing them? And is it any different now than it was then?
1: Um, I think I probably did it all on the computer at that time. I have made printouts for things actually when i was like sorting my website, I would print out all these little, you know, kind of little two by three inch, um, color photos and, and, and sort them and look at them. But I think for the lush Life book, I think I did it completely in photo mechanic, which is sort of what I used to edit, which is a great program. I don't know if you are familiar with that one. And I think I sequenced it in there and, and then I just laid it out, um, using blurb software, you know, using their book smart software and, and move some pages around and, you know, I, I think I did it completely on screen, actually, and um, I, I don't think there was any anything else specific to that, really. But just again, playing with a lot, and I tried a couple different covers, and I sent some covers to different friends. I like made some screen grabs. What do you think? And you know, I, I wasn't quite sure, and it, it just it came together with a little bit of help from my friends, and, and mostly just me on the computer messing around with it. But it, it's, an, it's a nice little book, actually. I kind of forget about it and, and don't really pull it out that often. But I'm, I'm always surprised by what's in there.
0: In terms of gauging people's reactions to your work, family, you know, will take a look at the work and they will go, that's really nice. <laughs> and nice photographs. Yeah. Yeah, and without any real appreciation or understanding of, of what you're doing. And I think as photographers and artists, we, we really kind of need that kind of informed feedback. So where did you... Where did you end up finding that? Was the blog a, a, a really key tool for being able to do that, or did you find find it elsewhere?
1: Um, so you're asking specifically about feedback, yeah, uh, right?
0: Feedback, or or just sort of a, a place or a group of people in which to jack in in terms of your your artistry and your art. Because I know that as photographer, as a photographer, I work in isolation a good amount of the time. But I have a few friends whose work I respect. And it's not necessarily that I'm asking for feedback in terms of what do they think about this photograph, but it it allows me a level of engagement that that provides me the opportunity to think about what I'm doing and to have some perspective on what I'm doing. Mm
1: -hmm. I think that's so important, actually, to be able to reach out. I, I also feel very isolated you know, being in the suburbs, I'm not so much sharing work with friends. But when I when I really started the blog, it was, you know, a lot of friends that sort of signed on to get the, you know, the blog posts. And, you know, I'd get an occasional note back, you know, great picture, love that moment, whatever, you know, and that was really nice. I think that was sort of the beginning of my sharing. And then, you know, in some ways, Facebook has been such a huge thing for me, I've made so many friends, and not just, you know, Facebook friends, but real life friends where I've I've met them offline, you know, and, and we have shared work. And so I've really, I think developed such a nice community of photo friends, photo minded people, um, uh, through Facebook. And, and that's really kind of what I try to use it for mostly. I, I'm very sort of careful about what I, what I put out there on Facebook. I don't want it to just be every thought that runs through my head, but I try to make it mostly about photography, mm-hmm. but I've, I've really met so many nice people through, um, Facebook and Flack Photo Network, and really great people who have been very, very supportive. And I've really reached out to for so many things, you know, everything from um, help editing to decide, you know, how do how do you decide on an edition size? And and I and I've printed postcards and they look terrible. Can I can I send you one? What do you think? I mean, crazy stuff. But I've reached out more times than I could count to to kind of to really new friends and, and some strangers. But it's been really, really helpful for me and I, I really appreciate the connections I've made there
0: you, you took a workshop with uh, the great Larry Fink who was a wonderful wonderful <laughs> photographer I
1: did it was a short it was a quick workshop actually it was two weekends um, about a year and a half ago through ICP two, two weekends are about a month apart
0: Yeah, and there was a quote that, uh, that you really resonated with and it was attraction is proportionate to destiny and I was hoping that you would explain to me what, what, that, what that meant to you
1: well, actually, you know, it's funny. I took another workshop with Larry Fink when I was, I was living in the Boston area. And that's when that quote, um, that's when he said that. And I was, um, I guess it was probably about 1989 or so. And I took a weekend workshop with him then. I took one again about a year and a half ago. and I And I referred to that quote. But with him, which was great. But that was really a life changer for me. Really, really huge. Because it made me sort of realize this time when I was working as a newspaper photographer that really telling other people's stories is not what I really wanted to do. And it helped me to leave my newspaper job. I was working for a small daily outside of the Boston area in Marlborough, Massachusetts. And I started sending out resumes to photo agencies in the New York area, looking for jobs as an editor. I I really kind of wanted to get, you know, get out of my car and get into an office and and I wanted to shoot really for me. So I wanted to make sure that when I picked up a camera, it was going to be personal and it was going to be what attracted me rather than being sent off to photograph the local election or the soccer game in the rain, which was great and fun, but really not, I think, what I was cut out to do. Um, ultimately, it was a, that was a really lonely job. It was a lot of you know sitting behind my steering wheel, eating lunch, you know, in my car. I mean, crazy stuff, and and really late nights, and just driving a lot, and was not what I wanted to do. But that quote from Larry Fink all those years ago, in about say you know 1989, really really stuck with me, and it's informed I think many of my choices my career choices and my photographic choices in terms of subject and how and how I approach that subject as well.
0: What exactly do you take it to mean?
1: Well, I think it means really follow your heart, you know, figure out what it is that, that makes your heart sing, what attracts you. I think, you know, that's really what you should be doing. And, and that's just, that's just not for photography, that's for anything. I think it's really important to, to realize who you are. and, and the kinds of things that um, that do attract you, I think it's very telling. But a lot of people ignore, I think, what attracts them. I think they they suppress it.
0: Or oh, they get lost in the everyday yeah. stuff of life, and it's uh, yes. And only later, when they you know get older, they realize that there's something miss- There's something missing, and it's often, oftentimes, some means of self-expression. Uh, I think that's what so many people end up you know discovering photography or or music later on in life because it's. You know, they've been focused on pursuing all these other things that have little to do with their own personal passion or what they need or want from their own lives. And then at some moment they realize, oh, I need something for myself, for the sake of myself. Mm -hmm. And and hopefully they can find it and thrive in it. And I think that... uh, I think this that's one of the reasons why this show resonates with so many people because it, while there are a good number of photographers who listen to this show who are working professional photographers I think the great majority of people are pursuing just that trying to find some way of being able to create something for themselves that that is very very personal.
1: Yes and and sadly we don't always get paid for our personal work, you know. That's not really what, what it's about. You know, I think it's just a really for me it's sort of it, it, It's shaped so much in terms of what I do and and how I make decisions. Ultimately, I, I, you know, I really want to do what I feel I should be doing. And that's generally when I work my best, you know, I will do jobs for other people and I have some clients here and there and that's great. And I I really like that work. It's nice. But I think, um, you know, I, I choose to live my life in a certain way and that really just stuck with me. And uh, Larry Fink is, is full of great quotes, but that was the one that I, I really hung on to. Yeah.
0: It seems like you you experienced a lot of support from your husband in, in your work. I do. Uh, can you tell us about that? And could you imagine still producing this work without that?
1: Well, I guess not. You know, I certainly wouldn't want to be making the work that was upsetting to him or he would find distasteful or that would make him uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, yet I don't necessarily make work just to please him, but he is very supportive in the sense that I think he knows me well enough to know that I kind of just need to, you know, be left to do what I want to do. He doesn't, um, he's just supportive and understanding if I need time to work and, you know, if it takes me away from our family or more into my family, um, as the pictures sometimes go, then he's really, really good with that. I think he's just, I think it's really a question of just being extremely respectful of who I am and what I, what I need to do. So I'm very, very lucky. You know, I, there've been a few moments where I've said to him, do you mind if I post this picture? And those are, you know, actually maybe some of him and some of me, um, that I, you know, I would sort of want his blessing, Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want him to be uncomfortable with it, me and my underwear, for example. And I he, he's miraculously not uncomfortable with that. So it, it is really nice. <laughs> I, I I don't take it for granted at all. He's pretty terrific.
0: Do, you, do you, Have you ever gotten any pushback from people in your, in your family or a community of friends that, you know, that don't get it, what you're doing and, and, and they have an issue with it?
1: You know, if they have an issue, they really haven't taken it to me. <laughs> really? Um, they they're mostly pretty supportive. I have to say for in, in whatever way they can be supportive. You know, I, I'm not surrounded by the most say um, you know, people I don't I'm not surrounded by people who are to doing things that are very creative in terms of making art. They live creatively and they, you know, everybody has their own their own passions in the way they do things. So it, it is a little hard sometimes. I just, I put myself out there and sometimes I get a really great response. Sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a lesser response. I don't take it personally either way. I think some people sometimes just get it and sometimes they don't. And maybe they comment when they do and maybe they're quiet when they don't. And that's okay. You know, I think it's, um, it is hard though, just in general, I, you know, putting work out there and, and, you know, being so public with, especially pretty pleased that there, there has been a lot of commentary on it that has been a little tough to take,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Um, I'm trying not to pay too much attention to it, but um, I I was really surprised actually by, I don't know if it's a, if you'd call it reactionary, just some very conservative people that chimed in on the work. And I know they're out there, but I'm generally not surrounded by them. So it was very different for me to have uh, the work put out there like that.
0: Were you kind of blindsided by it? Had you not expected had you expected you would get some negative reaction to it, but not the, the type that you did receive?
1: Uh, blindside,d I guess is the right is the right word in a sense. I mean, I kind of knew you know, my pretty please was on the um, the Huffington Post last week, and I kind of knew that that sort of meant you know the work could go kind of viral in a way, and I, I sort of was prepared for that. And the, I had read some negative reaction. You know, negative commentary from other posts, you know, on um, Urban, dec- uh, was it, um, sorry, Beautiful Decay or um, Feature Shoot, you know, here and there, but the, the, for the most part, it was pretty benign. I wasn't too concerned about it. I wasn't really quite prepared for what was going to go on um, after the Huffington Post um, put the feature up, not only on their main page, but also on their Facebook pages where it appeared as well. I mean, I. I mean, some really, really harsh commentary. So there was a point where I just had to stop reading it because it was really, like, I, I didn't respond to any of it because I really couldn't. And it was, I think, we're, you know, people are just going to misunderstand your work. And I, I think I'd have to be okay with that.
0: Yeah. Well, I look at the Huffington Post as the bridge under which the trolls choose to live. <laughs> uh, it's like... <laughs> It's just, it's just, that's great. It's just, there's, there's nothing as, in, regardless of how innocuous the, the article is, that there's going to be someone in there who's just going to say something nasty just for the sake of saying something nasty. So,
1: yeah. Know. And I think generally people, the people who do comment online tend to be the people who have something negative to say. You know, like you, if you go on a vacation and you have a terrible time and you're going to go on to TripAdvisor and that's when you're really going to complain, it's rare that the person has a wonderful time. Goes on to TripAdvisor, say it was great. You know, it's it's the people have negative commentary that tend to post. So I re- I do real I do you know I realize that it's okay, but I I'm, I'm okay with it this week. Last week it was a little rough. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, tell me about you know going out there and getting uh, your portfolio reviewed for for galleries and, and so on. What's mm-hmm. that? What's that process been been like for you? And you know, what have been some of the the best things about it, and maybe some of the worst things about
1: it? I've been to. A handful of portfolio reviews. I'm certainly not a seasoned veteran into just a couple. It is a great, I think it's a really good process for anybody because it does force you to pull the work together and be ready to talk about the work and present it. So that in and of itself is just such a good experience. And, you know, meeting with gallery owners, curators, editors, even editors that really would never be interested in in the work. It's just good to make contact because the more you put it out there, the more you learn about actually the work and how it's perceived. And it's a really good experience, I think, for anybody. So, but a lot of preparation, I think, goes into going to a portfolio review. You know, you you can't just go in haphazard. You got to plan, print, figure out how you're going to present things. You have a, you know, a case, like you you have a leave behind postcard. I mean, a business card as well. Are you prepared to take notes? There's a lot that goes into that, actually. But I I know people do kind of walk in less prepared, but I I felt like I really had to pull myself together. But it was a good experience, definitely. And, you know, everybody has something else to say. You never know. The the person you think is going to love your work may, you know, hate it and say, do you have anything else? (laughs) And then there's the person who you thought, you know, you had nothing in common with suddenly loves the work and has a lot to say and is happy to give you other ideas about maybe where to take it. So you never really know.
0: As well prepared as you were going in, what did you learn? What surprised you that you felt like, oh, that's a really good thing to know for the next time that I have to go out there and do that?
1: Well, I do think it's really important. Um, You know, I actually had a secondary body of work. Initially, when I went into portfolio reviews, I was really showing more of the family work. And the Pretty Please work was secondary. It was sort of my extra And I wasn't really, really ready to put it out into the world, but I I was told that you should really try to have a secondary body of work because occasionally you are going to sit across the table from a reviewer and they're going to say to you, do you have anything else? What else you got? You know, and you only have 20 minutes. So you think, how much can you get through? But you'd be surprised. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that was my biggest takeaway is that you really always have to have more than just one thing to show. Because sometimes 20 minutes is really just too long to talk about one body of work if somebody just doesn't get it. So I think that was um, really, really important. And it's also important to know who you're sitting down across the table from. You know, that's my takeaway as well. You know, be prepared and know who's, who's sitting there and who they are and where they've been and, and what they've shown interest in already and what they publish or what they have hung on their gallery walls. Very important to, to know who's there and, and, and be ready to, you know, engage them personally. You know, talk about something that, you know, maybe you've seen that they've done.
0: One of the hardest things for any photographer to do is to actually talk about their work and you know I put people on the spot every week.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> it is hard.
0: But you know when you're sitting in front of a, a, a curator of a gallery and you're there for 20 minutes as you said to, you really have to have a real sort of concise idea in terms of how to talk about your work and I think most people are at a, a complete loss in terms of how they should do that. Um, how do you how do you do, you know, when you're asked to do the same thing, what have you found that works for you? Because I think it's, you, you don't want to go in there telling people how to look at the work, and, but right. you also don't want to be redundant, if you know what I mean. I mean, the work needs to speak for itself, and so at some point you need to allow that and not really... You know, spew out something out of your mouth that sort of takes away what of what could be that person's unique experience of the work. So, how did you know? What have you formulated that that works for you with that, in that respect?
1: You know, I um, I introduce myself like literally, shake their hand, look at the, look at the person's eyes, like say hello, give them a warm hello, give them like maybe a literally a two line. Like, you know, here's what this is. Um, This is what it's, you know, I won't even necessarily say what it's about for me, but, you know, I'll just give them like a two line entry to the to the work. And then really, you can't shut up enough. You just have to be quiet. It's really hard, especially if you're anxious, Mm. but you just have to be quiet and see what happens. That's the hardest part, I think, is just trying to be a good listener and and tune into somebody else's body language and, and and how they're perceiving the work
0: and and learn not to be defensive
1: oh yeah no yeah. i know you can't make excuses for pictures if it doesn't work for someone it doesn't work for them and you just have to let it go yeah, yeah. i think that's that's key as well cuz people people really you know they sense that
0: yeah cuz the the, oh, the ultimate goal is is trying to find somebody who gets it ultimately and mm-hmm. you know there're going to be a lot of people who are not going to get it and that's okay you know it's 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 just like anything else you can't please everybody so you know no. The goal of putting the work out there is to find that, that person or that group of people who look at it and they get it and they can be cheerleaders of the work. And then you can collaborate with them, you know, whatever journey you guys are going to take together. I think that ultimately that what's, it has to be. And I think the mistake too many people make is that, well, they have unreasonable expectations of what that process is about.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, helps. again, I think actually portfolio reviews in particular are really the beginning of a conversation, With, you know, maybe eight or 10 or 12 people, whatever the review is that you're going to. But that's really all of those meetings are. I think it's a rare person who walks away with a book deal or, you know, I'm going to get a show at a gallery. I think it's very rare. And mostly what those meetings are about, they're just beginnings of conversations that really it's up to you as a photographer to try to continue to be engaged with someone after you walk away from that table. You know, what do you do two weeks later or two months later or even two years later? How do you contact that person and, you know, and stay in touch? But that's really all a portfolio is. It's just the beginning.
0: Well, my my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, huh. someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: Oh, boy. Let's think. Well, kind of a recent discovery for me uh, last fall I subscribed to Aperture and the Aperture issue that I got uh it last September or so was um the theme was play and I discovered the work of Joanne Callis in that issue and was completely smitten I just I ne- I was unfamiliar with her work I I, you know, I hadn't heard of her and I was really, I became very engaged with her, with her work and her process and, you know, did as much research as I could on her. There wasn't a whole lot out there actually, but, um, I really think her work is just beautiful. And, um, there's a, there's a book that, uh, Aperture just published of this particular body of work of hers that I am completely enamored with from the mid seventies. So I would recommend Joanne Callis. She's awesome. And she lives in California.
0: Oh. And where can people go to find out more about you and and
1: your work? Oh, goodness. Let's see. I guess the Huffington Post. (laughs) No, but I have a website. Um, It's uh, andyschreiber.com. And I have a blog as well. You can actually find it through the website, but the blog is called Wonderlust. That's one word. And um, yeah, I'm sort of around. People can find me. I'm on Facebook too. So say hi. Thank
0: you so much. I, I love talking to you. Thank you so much.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I really am happy to happy to meet you and speak with you as well. It's a, an honor to be here.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy thirty percent off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I produced, including my first book. Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P is in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at TheOtherMartinTaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibadi X and this is The Candid Frame.